0: Actually one of my best friends from college is here today and uh, he's actually here from our sending church in North Carolina. Uh, He's one of our teaching pastors uh, down there and actually he's one of my favorite communicators. I don't just say that because he's one of my best friends but he just is and uh, he's been loving God, serving him for years now. He's traveled the world preaching the gospel, seeing people come to Jesus, seeing disciples made, helping to get churches started and so the good news is that he's here with us today. So if you could um, please give a Welcome to Charles Kiefer. Charles Kiefer. Thank you. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm really happy to be here and grateful to Rollin for a lot of reasons, Uh, not just for his friendship over the years, but because Rollin was one of the people who helped to bring me to a place of reading the Bible and um, trying to understand who God is in a more intentional way, and I'll try to, to this morning project my voice and be a little bit animated for you and act like I have some enthusiasm, because Rollin is normally so quiet and calm and docile, I figured you' probably need something to shake you up a little bit this morning. Um, but I am really grateful to him because when I was a freshman in college, in 1996. Rollin was a freshman, too, and he came from a, a home that was not very religious. And somewhere there in our first semester, he met God. He started reading the Bible, and then he was just walking around to everybody on campus, including me and half the football team. I played football, and there were guys who were 6'5", 350 pounds, and Rollin would come up to them and just grab him by the arms and say, Come on, bro, we got to go to Bible study. You know, and he was all enthusiastic and excited. And he would grab people and pull on people and urge people, and he's just always been like that. So I'm really grateful for that because he began to speak to me and help me and encourage me in a way that nobody ever had before. Uh, Because my family did not grow up in church. Uh, My parents, neither one, grew up in very religious homes. My mom's mom was married five times. My mother ran away from home when she was 15 years old to try to find her dad who she had never met before. Um, my dad grew up in an orphanage. He grew up in foster care in North Carolina, and he tried to go to church some with one of his foster families, and he told me I didn't grow up with him because my parents actually divorced when I was young. They got married when they were teenagers, and by the time they were 20, 21, they divorced. I was three years old. And my dad told me, it's hard to go to church and follow God when the people who take you there beat you when you come home. And so that's the kind of environment and background and perspective that they had on God and church. So when my mom remarried and I was growing up, uh, her birth coach, when she was pregnant with my sister and myself, began to tell her about God and this birthing coach. Her name was Shirley Huffman. I'm very grateful to her because she and five or six of her friends were starting a church in a little town called Hickory, North Carolina, near the foothills of North Carolina. And that lady told my mom the story of Jesus, and it got in her heart, and she at least believed it. She didn't know how to live or act on it fully, but the story got in her heart, and she began to tell us here and there when we were growing up. And so by the time I got to college, I knew God was real. I believed in Him, and I had had experiences, spiritual experiences, but I didn't know anything about how to actually act on what I thought was true or live in a way that reflected those beliefs. So in the uh, Christmas break of my senior year in high school, I got into a fight with my best friend, almost a, a fist fight, where he was trying to tell me I was not a Christian. He said, man, I know how you live. I know all the stuff you do. He's about 6'5", 260 pounds. He played DN when he got into college and was, uh, had a chance to play professional football and lost it because he got in a fight in the club and broke a guy's jaw. And wouldn't do his community service that the judge sentenced him to. And he got kicked out of school. And so these are the kind of people that I hung out with. And we got into a fight one time about whether or not I was a Christian. And he was trying to tell me, you ain't no Christian, man. You want to do this and this and this. And he, he was the person who knew my life the best. And fast forward a year from the se- my, my senior in high school to Christmas break. My, my freshman year in college, I got into the almost exact same conversation with a guy Over Christmas break, we were about to go to a bowl game, and my best friend at that time in college looked at me, and I said something about God walking in our dorm, and he goes, Charles, I wouldn't expect that you'd be the kind of person who believed in God. And it's like somebody smacked me in the face. And around that time was when Rollin had been befriending me, and and another guy named Dave Cook, and a few others, and were trying to bring me to Bible studies and to pray and different things in the dorm. And I just knew at that point, if the people closest to me can't tell by the way I live that I have any kind of belief in God in my heart, there's something wrong with me. And I would just cry in my bed at night and think to myself, what is wrong with me? Man, if I die right now, I'm going to hell. I remember la- actively thinking that, laying in my bed at night on my freshman year in college. And a couple months later... I quit football and about two weeks after that, I was up on the sixth floor of House Dorm in the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill with Roland and our friend Dave and they have been telling me, if you just repent, if you believe, God will give you his spirit. He'll fill you, man. He'll give you all kinds of visions. He'll heal you. He'll touch you. He's real. And I was like, I believe it. I just don't know what to do about it. Help me. And we got down on my knees and they put their hands on me one night and prayed. And at 19 years old, I just turned 19. I got filled with the Spirit of God who's alive, and He changed me. And from that point on, I've never looked back. And it's been amazing, and I'm so grateful to Rollin because he's a man of integrity. He's not a perfect guy at all. He has lots of flaws like I do and all of us in the room, and we're all messed up. You know, we have all these weaknesses and things that we don't see about ourselves. But I I know what he is. He's a man who's humble. He admits his wrongs. He has integrity. He does the best he can. He's prayerful. He's generous. And he moved up here maybe with Cole and one other person, I don't know, in his family and said, we're going to Chicago to talk to people about Jesus because Jesus changed my life. And I'm amazed to see you all sitting here right now. It's fascinating to me that God will create a community out of one or two people's faith. And I know you have collective stories that, that are interwoven that go well beyond your involvement here because God is at work in all of our lives. I am going to read from the book of Second Peter today. My message is going to be called, um, What kind of person you are is more important than the kind of work you do. The kind of person you are is more important than the kind of work you do. So I've worked for 15 years with college students, and the, the question on college students' minds constantly is, What am I going to do with my life? What kind of job am I going to do? And most of you aren't wrestling with that question, I assume, right now. But there are probably a lot more students during the school year who are here. And everybody always wants to say, what am I going to do? And they ask the question about God and about calling, and they say... What am I supposed to do? What did you make me for, God? What kind of work am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to use my life to not waste my life and make a difference? And I want to make an impact, whatever that means, like on the world. And I want to do something with my life. And I've got to find this perfect job, as if this perfect job exists. And my perfect role and my perfect fit. And we're all consumed a lot of times in our mind with, what am I going to do with my life? But the story of the Bible is more about what kind of person are you going to become? And whatever you do, the scripture says, do it with all your heart as unto God. And when you do whatever you do, God will glorify himself, depending on the kind of person that you become. So Peter, like a good movie, you know how movies sometimes start at the end? And then you see like a two-minute scene about something that's happening at the end. then they go back to the beginning, and they build up to the end over two hours, and you finally get it. Right? As you watch the story unfold. We're going to do that here with Peter's last letter that he wrote. We're going to start at the end in 2 Peter 3, verse 11. And then we're going to go back to 2 Peter 1. And I want to tell you, I want to spend half my time here talking about Peter as a person. And the story of his life and how it unfolded. And then look at the things that he wrote to this community of people and why they're important, what he meant by them, based on his own life story and experience. And in this letter, he does three things. He addresses three groups of people. The first one we'll call believers. The second one we'll call false believers. And the third one we'll, be, we'll call non-believers. I won't get into detail with all of these, but this is the kind, kinds of groups that he's talking about in the letter. And at the end, he's talking about non-believers and how people mock God and the idea of Jesus coming back or God coming back to take any kind of action in the earth. And he says these scoffers, these mockers ask questions like, Oh, he said he's coming back? Well, everything's been the same as far as I can tell for thousands of years. So when's he coming? You know?" And there's unbelief in their hearts. And he goes, what they don't know is that God a long time ago created the world by his word. And that with much patience, the world has developed out of water and through water. And, and then by that same water, during the days of Noah, he destroyed the earth. And then he rebuilt it with some people who he had called and brought close to himself, Noah and seven others. He said, and in, the, in the same way, he won't destroy the world, world by water anymore. But one day he will judge the whole world and purify it by fire. And when he cleanses the earth through fire, he's going to make it new, give it a new birth, so that one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. And so his thrust of all that he builds up to in this letter is is that we, as human beings, should become a kind of people. There's a kind of human that God is looking for. It's not just what you do with your life or what kind of work you do or what kind of job you work or are you serving, but really, oftentimes, the work that you do is a reflection of the kind of person that you are on the inside. Let's go back to the beginning of the letter here and read 2 Peter 1. I want to focus on six words or six concepts in my short time with you. The word servant, the word faith, the word grace, the word promises, the word corruption, and the word character. Service, faith, grace, promises, corruption, character. This is the line of thinking I'm going to follow this morning. Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God, And of Jesus our Lord. I want to first talk about Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle. It's really funny because Peter grew up with a family business. If you're not familiar with his life, his dad was a fisherman, his brother was a fisherman, Andrew, and their close friends, James and John, and their dad, Zebedee, were fishermen. And these two families used to fish together. I don't know if you've ever seen shows like The Deadliest Catch or. Uh, shows on the History Channel or whatever about fishermen, people who go out. Fishermen are rough kind of guys. They're not always known for being the, the smoothest, you know, kind of people, language. They go out in harsh water in the middle of the night, fishing in deep water, pulling in fish. They go to the market early in the morning and sell their fish. And what's interesting is that a guy who, with his dad, ran a family business, and was at least sustaining his family, if not successful in his business, at least moderately successful in his business, was re-identified from being an entrepreneur or a family business model to calling himself at the end of his life, and the last thing that he wrote, a servant. He left his business, he left his work, he left his industry to identify himself with the, the greatest title that he could think of when he introduced himself to congregations or reminded people of who he was to them as a servant. He said, I'm a servant and an apostle. And we misunderstand the word apostle sometimes. It's not really native to our English language. And so we think of it in ways that it does not mean. One of our friends uh, named Rice Brooks, who started churches around the world, was in Greece a few years ago and said he saw in the newspaper an ad for a pizza company where they said, Apostle wanted for delivering pizzas. Because in Greek, the word means an errand boy, a messenger, somebody you send out to do something for you delivering some food, right? And so what Peter is saying when he introduces himself as a servant and apostle, he goes, hey, I'm, I am Jesus' permanent intern, because you know after you graduate from college or in, in between your like, junior and senior year, you go out and you want an internship, and what that really means is you're just going to be somebody's slave for like two months, and they're going to treat you like dirt and pay you nothing with the hope that someday you could grow up to be like them and have your own interns. But Peter's in the permanent mindset. He goes, I'm just Jesus' intern, his errand boy. How did the guy who, who had, used to have a successful family business switch in his life to having a mindset that I'm just somebody else's assistant going out doing their bidding for them? And he says, I'm writing to you people who through the uprightness of God, the the." the stand-up nature of God, the good-mindedness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. You've gotten something in your heart like I got in my heart. What does he mean by faith? That you've received a faith as precious as ours. You think about something that's precious Is something that's rare. This watch that I'm wearing right here is precious to me. It probably cost 80 or $90. It's not an expensive watch. It's not a Rolex. It's just a few pieces of metal and some animal skin. That's what leather is, right? Everybody wants leather. All you're saying is, I want some animal skin. What is this? This is some stuff that was mined out of the earth. It ultimately will burn and decay. It's irrelevant. It's meaningless. Except that my wife gave it to me. And she engraved something on the back of it, a message that's special to me. There's no other watch like this in the earth to me because it was a gift from my wife. Probably some of you have things like that in your life and they're precious to you. They're unique even though there might be a thousand other things that look like them. No, that thing is special to you because you have personal history with it what Peter is saying is, we have a, a trust in this man, Jesus. I'm his errand boy. I'm his messenger. And I've got something that's a deep connection. I have history with this person, Jesus. And this isn't like an ancient faith to Peter. Jesus was a person he lived with, hugged, touched, ate fish with, barbecued with, camped with, was in mountains and desert with, in the city with, in the temple with. He was in all kinds of contexts with this man for three and a half years. He says, you now have something of faith, a trust in this man like I have. It's a faith that's as precious to you as it is to me. Why is it precious? What does it mean to have a faith? See, the world gives us a definition of faith or belief as any kind of religious thing or trusting in something, even though you have no evidence for it. It's just important to have some kind of faith in your life, some kind of belief in your life, right? I was going down to Jamaica, where Rollins' family's from, a couple years ago, and we had some athletes with us, Uh, Pancake, where's Emily, there you are, she went to school over at UNC, we used to work, oh, Emily Fancook, everybody called her back home, Pancake, that's what her last name means, (laughs) sort of, and uh, sorry, and so we were, we used to work with athletes, and do this Bible study on campus with athletes, and we were going to take a mission trip to Jamaica, and I thought, I'm going to call up the AD of the university we're going to, even though I don't know anybody there, and I'm going to to tell them we got some Olympic caliber athletes. One of them was a gold medalist in her sport, and say, hey, you got any athletes we can talk to or work out with or just get to know or encourage or whatever? And I called this AD on the phone, and she goes, oh, yeah. I won't try to do my Jamaican accent. She said, oh, yeah, we'd love to have you. It's real important for people to have something to believe in. But, you know, we don't want to tell anybody what to believe because as long as people have something to believe in, that's good enough for them. I'm like, something to believe in, as long as you have something to believe in? So if I believe I should fly planes into the Twin Towers, that's good because I have a belief? Are all beliefs really equal? Is it good enough to just have something to believe in? Or does it matter what you've put your trust in? Does it matter what you believe in? What is faith, really? Why does Peter say faith to him is precious? Well, he had history. (laughs) It's really interesting that there are people like Richard Dawkins, who's a famous atheist biologist in England, who wrote a book called The God Delusion, who argued with John Lennox in a debate. Lennox is a mathematician representing and arguing for the Christian faith. And Dawkins says, you can't have faith because faith is is believing in something with no evidence. And Lennox says, do you have faith in your wife? And he's all of a sudden trapped because if he says no, what does that do to your marriage? (laughs) You have to say yes, but the question is begged, why? Why do you have faith in a person Because you have experience with them. I have faith in Roland. I trust him in certain ways because I have 21 years of friendship with him. And when he tells me we're going out for pizza tonight, I believe what he says. Why would I do that? Peter was at a wedding with Jesus in the early days. Let me spend about six or seven minutes talking about Peter's life and then we'll get back into the the letter he wrote. Peter was at a wedding with Jesus in the early days. In John chapter 2, Jesus had done no public ministry or no public signs. People were beginning to know who he was because his cousin, John the Baptizer, was pointing people toward him. In those days, John the Baptizer had become incredibly well-known. We're not familiar with John right now in modern 21st century America, but in the ancient world during his lifetime, he was exceptionally well-known. He becomes so well-known overnight, it was like he was an overnight YouTube sensation that had a billion hits on his video, right? And John the Baptist would start to become so well-known that it says people were coming by the droves from the country to the capital, Jerusalem, coming out into the desert where he lived. He used to wear camel hair as a coat and a leather belt around his waist and, and live out in the desert and eat wild honey. And live off locusts and flowers. And this strange guy out in the desert in the middle of nowhere became an overnight sensation where he was telling people that they needed to change their mind and the way they were living because God, who was governing the universe, was about to descend in Israel and connect, make connections with people. And he would tell them that they needed to change the way they are living. And they'd ask him questions, soldiers, like, what should we do? And he'd say, be happy with what you get paid by the government. Don't use your weapons and your position through coercion, to extract money from people. He told tax collectors things like, "What you should only collect enough taxes to pay. Don't take by force or use your position in government work to leverage people who are accountable to you to steal from them. Don't use your position in work. If you have two coats, he said, then give one of them to someone else. He told them practical advice about their day-to-day life. And people began to come to John by the thousands. Thousands and thousands came to get baptized. And one day as they were all coming to him, he looks at this man, his cousin Jesus, and he goes, I see it now. He's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. And everybody was like, who? Him. In fact, you should go follow him. He has to become more important. I have to become less important. And John began to backpedal and step back and allow Jesus to take preeminence. And Jesus comes and says, baptize me. And John goes, hey, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus goes, no, baptize me. Dip me in this water. We have to do this to make everything right. Jesus had to show the way of humility on the earth, submitting himself even to someone who was more inferior to him, submitting himself to do what was right. And in the midst of that conversation, those exchanges, as Jesus is getting baptized, there's a guy named Andrew who's following John, and Andrew is Peter's brother. Peter wasn't even there yet. And Andrew hears from John to follow Jesus, and he goes to get his brother. He goes, hey, Peter, I think we found the guy who's the Savior of the world. John is saying he's the Messiah. We should follow him. So Peter comes out to check him out. They become students of Jesus. They begin to follow Him day to day. And one of the first things they do is go to a wedding in a little town called Cana in the country region of Galilee. And at this wedding, they run out of wine. You're familiar with the story probably, if you've read the Bible or been around in church for a while. And Mary is there and they say to Jesus, Hey, could you help them out? And He goes to His mom, It's not ready time for me to get involved. Don't get me involved. But the servants come anyway and say, Your mom said you could help us. He goes, Okay fill all those stone pitchers with water, and then take some of the water and serve it to the maitre d'. And the guys go, okay, if you say so. And they're filling it with water. They get these big stone watering jars. They fill them with water. They scoop some out. They take it to the maitre d'. And the maitre d' drinks and he goes, man, where did you get this wine? And he goes to the groom later and he says, most people serve the best wine first, and after people get a little tipsy, they bring out the cheap stuff. But I can't believe you've served the better wine later. Where'd you get this? And it says the servants knew that Jesus had turned the water into wine. They're the only one who knew what had happened. In this fascinating verse in John chapter 2, verse 11, I believe it is, it says, This is how Jesus revealed his glory to his disciples, and they put their faith in him. He had never done anything in public before, but they began to see what did he just do? That's amazing. And something in their heart began to unlock. Something in their heart began to trust him. A little while later, Peter was fishing in the middle of the night, in the early morning hours, and he didn't catch anything. You ever felt like that? You've been working so hard on the grind, doing everything you can do to make a breakthrough, to start your business, to get a job, to study or whatever, and it still just feels like it's not enough. Peter was there all night fishing, wasn't enough. He comes out, nothing in the morning, Jesus begins to come early in the morning, crowds come to Jesus, he's teaching them, they're pressing him so tightly that he goes, hey Peter, can we get in your boat and push off a little bit? They push off the shore, they're standing in the boat, and a few feet from the shore, Jesus is teaching them out of Peter's boat. When he's done and satisfied that he's taught them sufficiently, he says to Peter, hey, let's go out out deep and catch some fish. And Peter goes, all right, what does a carpenter know about fishing? I've been fishing all night, sir. I haven't caught anything. Okay, because you told me to. I've seen some of the things you've done. I'm going to try it. They push out in the deep. Row out into the deep. He says, throw your, throw your nets over there. Whew. The nets had no sooner entered the water than they began to pull them in. The catch of fish was so much, the, the gospel biographers write, that the, the the catch of fish was going to sink their boats. And he starts whistling. <laughs> John! John, come here! Come here! And they pull the John's boat up and they fill both their boats so full of fish and Peter's response is overwhelmed. He goes, oh man, I didn't trust you at all. And he goes, just stay away from me. I I'm not even worth talking to you, Jesus. And something in his heart was unlocking. Story by story, you read in the Bible, Peter's interaction with Jesus. He needs to pay taxes and he... And he's like, Jesus, should we pay these taxes? They're asking us for the temple tax. Jesus goes, yeah, take your fishing rod and go cast a line over there in the sea. You're going to catch one fish. There'll be a gold coin in its mouth. Use that coin to to pay our tax. What? Peter's like, what? All right, you taught me some funny stuff, Jesus, but I'm going to go get my rod. He goes out, throws his line in, catches a fish, pays a tax. Year by year, month by month, Jesus does these things in Peter's life as they're living together, talking together, and he sees Jesus is not normal. There is something happening through this man that is unlocking my heart. Is touching deep things. He gets so devoted, so loyal, that at the last dinner, on the night before Jesus dies, Jesus goes, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter goes, not me, Lord. I'm ready to die with you now. We ride or die, baby! I mean, he is proclaiming his own loyalty to Jesus. Jesus goes, before tonight's over, you're going to deny that you've ever even met me three different times. He goes, no, no, Lord, no. Jesus gets arrested after dinner and before the chickens are crowing in the morning, Peter has denied three times he's ever met Jesus. They get up Sunday morning after he's killed and a bunch of women go to the tomb. The stone is rolled away Jesus is not there. Mary says she touched him. She talked to him. They come back to the house where Peter is. They go, hey, hey, wait. We went to the tomb to put the spices on his dead body and to put the oil there and the flowers and the the, the stone was rolled away and there's these angels and Jesus was there and I saw him and he's alive. Peter's like, what are you talking about? He's alive. He's alive. And they start running. He says Peter and John start running to the tomb and it says Peter went in. And he picked up the burial cloths that Jesus was formerly wrapped in. And all this story is to say, that night Jesus came and talked to them and he touched him and put his hands in his wounds. And a few days later, Peter was fishing again. And Jesus was on the shore with a, starting a fire, cooking some fish while they were out early in the morning fishing. And he goes, hey guys, did you catch anything? And they hadn't caught anything. And he goes, Throw your nets out on the other side of the boat. Flashback to three years earlier. Throws it out. So many fish. Peter goes, It's the Lord. And he jumps. and says he put his outer garment on him. He jumps out of the boat and starts wading through the water, running ahead of the other guys, and hugs Jesus. And Jesus goes, Hey, I'm glad to see you. This is after the resurrection. He says, Let me ask you a question, Peter. Do you love me? He goes, Yeah, more than anything. He goes, feed my sheep. Take care of my people. And that started for for Peter a lifelong journey where he began to speak to people and catch people. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was given, 3,000 people believed what he was teaching. Then it grew to 5,000 people believed what he was teaching. He started talking to Romans and he raised a woman from the dead and he healed a crippled man. He became so famous himself that it says people would lay their sick people in the streets near where Peter lived, where he was going to walk, that maybe Peter's shadow would fall on them as they were walking by and they would be healed. Peter became known around the world as something. And at the end of his life, when he looked back, he said, I'm just an errand boy. I'm just a messenger. I'm just a servant. And this is what I'm writing to as a people who share a history and a faith, a trust in a man that is as precious to you as it is to me. It's not rooted on nothing, it's rooted in history. It's not based on nothing, blind faith. It's based in touch. It's based on facts. It is based on people's stories. More than a dozen people who write in the New Testament and 500 who have said to see him alive. When he was raised from the dead, this is not just a religion. This is the revelation of God himself in the earth. God, without ceasing to be what he was also became a man. He wrapped himself in humanity, walked on the earth, lived a perfect life that we never lived, died the death that we should have died in our place, was raised from the dead after three days. And then he says, anybody who believes in me, I'm going to give you a resurrection body. I'm going to forgive your sins. I'll raise you from the dead at the last day as well. And you're going to live with me for eternity. the judgment, you won't suffer the punishment for your sins because I've covered them with my atoning blood. And now you get into Peter's letter, and we'll start to land our plane here based on the letter that he wrote. And he wishes upon the people grace and peace. His deepest prayer for them is grace and peace. He says, what you've been given is a faith, it's a gift. What you have working inside of you is grace, is favor and help and love and kindness that you never earned, that you didn't deserve. There's nothing I could do. Peter goes, I thought I was special. I thought I was loyal. I even betrayed Him. But let me tell you what He did. He restored me. He became my friend. He raised me up. He made me useful to Him. Even though I had sinned against Him. He gave me grace. And what I hope for you is you can understand that grace would be abundant in your life. It would be multiplied to you. Peace would wash you. You would feel so at rest no matter what you've done or where you've been. Have you been in pornography? Have you been disobedient to your parents? Have you been, you know, an alcoholic? Have you violated your conscience? Have you done things in your life you're ashamed of? So had Peter, so have I, so has everybody. And the point of the good news of Jesus is that He gives us grace when we don't deserve it. And that grace should usher in a time of peace over our life. You don't have to strive to prove yourself or validate yourself to God or anyone else. You can rest in your soul. Grace and peace... He says His God power, this is verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. We'll read about 10 verses and then we'll wrap up. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through these promises you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world Caused by evil desires. What he's saying here, in a brief comment, is that the whole world is corrupt. We're talking last night about stocks and investing, and, and uh, about Visa as a company, and whether or not you should invest in it, and how our culture is trending toward a cashless society. And then we got talking India, uh, roland was talking about India, how India is making passing legislation to Use credit and digital means of financial transactions exclusively, as as opposed to being a cash-based society, because there's so much corruption, and how that will affect the poor. But the point is that they're making those, those passing those pieces of legislation because corruption is rampant. You look at China, communist China, that has a communist system. That is a philosophy, an ideology that is designed to eliminate corruption, but in spite of the system, the corruption grows. There's still a top 1% growing in China. Billionaires who own private jets, even though airspace is restricted and they can't fly them, they hold them on their land as status symbols. It's amazing what happens in humanity. It doesn't matter your political ideology. Corruption is rampant in the human heart. It's rampant in the world. It affects all of us on multiple different levels. And Peter is saying God has given us now through His grace a God power, a connection with God, not to try to become something important in the world, to become a kind of person on the inside that escapes the corruption that's in the world caused by the evil desires that operate in humans. You have the power of God if you believed in Jesus to become something that you never even think is possible. He's going to make you into something. Let's end by reading this. He says, For this very reason, in verse 5, because you've got God power, because you have history with Jesus, because you have promises, promises like, I will never leave you or abandon you. Promises like, anybody who comes to me, I will never turn them away. Promises like Jesus saying, if you admit that you're wrong, I will forgive your sins and cleanse you of everything wrong that you've ever done. Promises that are so precious. Since we have, for this very reason, verse 5, you, should make, you and I should make every effort to add to this faith, this precious faith, goodness, and the goodness, knowledge, and the knowledge, self-control. You know, there's 20 different teachings, at least, in the New Testament on self-control. Paul, one time, was arrested and stood in front of a king, a regional king and a city governor, Felix and Agrippa. And he's on trial, arrested for preaching by the Jews. He's being accused of doing something wrong according to their culture. And, he, and and Paul speaks in front of these people and he goes in front to this king and this governor. It says he would teach them about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. Now if Rahm Emanuel was coming into the courtroom when you were on trial and President Obama or President Trump or some government figure was in the courtroom and you're standing on trial to give your defense for what you're accused of, most of us don't... are not inclined to teach them about righteousness and controlling themselves. And that's Paul's mindset. That's the way the New Testament comes. He goes, I don't care what you think about me. What I'm on trial for is calling humanity to live with eternity in mind because a judgment is coming on the earth that is going to expose the lack of self-control in people's lives. And God wants to give us an uprightness inside of us, not because of anything we've done, but because of His own glory and His own goodness and His own kindness and His own tenderheartedness and His own patience, endurance with the earth, that He sends a man, Jesus, into the world to suffer and die for us, to call us up into a different kind of mindset so that now I'm not trying to get mine in the world, I'm trying to give what is His away. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to this precious faith you have Character qualities like goodness, knowledge, understanding who God really is, self-control, and to keep persevering in that self-control. Don't just resist temptation once or twice and say, I tried. A lot of people are like that. Man, I keep going back to that same old thing. Man, I tried one time. People tell me that about God. Yeah, I tried to go to church. How many times? Three. I tried to read the Bible. Didn't help me. Well, how many times were you going to do that about your diet? I tried that diet one time. I tried to work out one time. Now, you got to work out for like five years to get the kind of tone and, and momentum that you want, the body structure that you want. It's not a one time thing, it's no different with spiritual things. Peter's going, look, in your self-control and in your knowledge and your development of goodness in your life, persevere in it. Keep going in it, baby. Five years, eight years, ten years, fifteen years. God is looking for a long-term development in you to become a kind of person. He says, with godliness, that means making decisions that honor God, having mutual affection for other people, and finally, love. And this is his promise, because if you have these qualities and they are increasing in your life, If you possess these qualities in an increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Most people in this world want to have an effect and they want to produce something great. Unfortunately, that is what we start with. And it's a wrong-headed goal. We try try to say, I want to make an impact. I want to make a difference. I want to do something great with my life. And the way we go about it is all carnal and natural and in our own power. And it ends up failing. Ask the CEO of Uber. Ask Joe Paterno, the winningest football coach of all time. People who do great things in their life and they're known for their great accomplishments in any place of industry. And then it comes out, in the end, what was really going on. Because it's not about what you do. It's the kind of person that you become as you're doing it. And he says, if you don't have these qualities inside of you, then you're nearsighted, you're blind, you forget you've been cleansed from your past sins. But if you can remember, if you can focus on your character development, if you can remember the promises of God, that everything you have is by His grace, that your faith is a gift from Him, that you're really ultimately a servant like Peter, you can focus on your self-controlled, humble, godly, God-honoring, Christ-exalting service, your generosity, Dealing with difficult people in your workplace, not smacking them back when they smack you verbally. I got on the train coming up here, and uh, the doors open to the train. I was taking the orange line to come see Rollin, and this guy gets on the train with his friend, and, and I'm sitting right beside the door. And he comes in, and he goes, You here for Pride Week? I was like, I'm sorry, what? I didn't even know what he's talking about. You up with pride week? I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he grabs my chest. He goes, boy, you sexy. I said, I'm going to tell you one thing. you can get this hand off of my body right now. And he sat down beside me. He's like, well, you need to get your body off this train. I said, look at me in my eyes. I'm going to be very patient with you because you might not know like I didn't know. But I'm going to ask you six questions. And unfortunately, I didn't get to get through the six because I had to get off. I said, number one, where's your dad? He goes, what do you mean, where's my dad? He's probably at home. I said, number two, did you grow up with your father? This is all in like 30 seconds. I said, did you grow up with your father? He goes, I mean, I grew up with him like I grew up with anybody. I said, did your father live in your household with you, and did he love you? He goes, well, no, but I did have a male figure who destroyed me. And I could have killed myself. I thought about it. But I realized I'm more important than that. And I don't need to destroy myself because somebody else has driven me into the ground. And he started talking to me, telling me all these things. And I said, listen, I got to go. They announced a I I said, I got to go, but I want to tell you something that's really important. I didn't grow up with my father either. And we're all deformed and dysfunctional because of it. But there is a father in heaven who loves you. And you can know him, get connected to him by Jesus. I said, I, I don't have much time to explain it. I'm sorry I couldn't spend more time talking with you. I wish that I could. I feel like you've disrespected me, but I just want you to know I forgive you. He's like, well, thanks. <laughs> you know? I said, I got to go. I wish you the best and get off the train. Do you know my natural self, in my old life, my instinct... And you as women probably, probably every woman in here has been somehow violated or touched or or accosted some way in ways that you don't prefer, ways you didn't ask for. What, What is it that's at work inside of a human being that restrains us when we're violated? Now that's a minimal thing. Jesus was nailed to a tree with railroad spikes in His hand and He prayed for the people executing Him. Father, forgive them. They don't even understand what they're doing. What is that? And how do we get that inside of our hearts? Peter says, if you have these kind of qualities working inside of you, you will be effective and productive no matter what you do. Because the kind of person that you are is more important than the kind of work that you do. Let me close in 30 seconds by saying, 2 Peter 1, 19, and 2 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2 are both reminders for the people to read and pay attention to the prophets, the Jewish prophets and the teachings that the apostles gave. So the question becomes, how do I become this kind of person? There may be several ways, but at least by prayer. And Peter urges the people. He urges them to pay attention to the prophets. He said, You'll do well to pay attention to them. You'll do well to read your Bible every morning. You'll do really well to make a habit, as often as you eat natural food, to eat the spiritual words of God, to study the history, to study Isaiah, to study Moses, to study Jeremiah, to study Micah and Hosea and people who you've probably never paid much attention to. Peter and John and Paul and these guys who have history with God and experiences with God. They seem the resurrected Messiah. What do they know? They know a lot about God and they can help you learn in your life these days. So I'm urging you and challenging you even to do what Roland helped me do. When I was 19, you start to read the Bible every day. And if you don't know how to read it like I didn't, i fall asleep. I try to read it every night. Genesis 1. <laughs> Genesis 1. Next night. Poof. For three months, every night, I couldn't get past two verses of Genesis. Poof. If you don't know how to engage the Bible, get with somebody who does. Read it together. And I'm telling you, you spend six months reading the Bible every day with somebody else and start to memorize it and think about the words of the prophets and renew your mind to wholesome thinking, you will find yourself becoming a kind of person that you could not be in your own strength. And this is God's will for you. It's His promise for you. He will make you something awesome and glorious in this earth. Not because of your own self, because he's just good. and He loves to change his people into something that they were not previously. I thank you for letting me be here with you this morning. And, Roland, I don't know how you want to lead it on, but thank God. Just solid and good, isn't it? All right, let's rise to our feet, and because of God's goodness towards us, Let's return to him that affection that he's lavished on us, that Charles was just talking about, in the great and precious promises that he gave to us. And let's honor the Lord for what he's done for us, who he is, and what he's done for us. In Jesus' name.